Good evening, everyone. Uh, who is Jesus? Uh, it's a question that's been asked. It's a question that has intrigued people for years. Books have been written. Councils have met. Pictures have been drawn. Films have been made. Songs have been sung. Debates have raged. All exploring the identity of this fascinating man who divides history, B.C., A.D. Jesus himself actually asked the question on one occasion, who do people say I am? And the answers that he received were varied and incredibly interesting. And then he personalized it. He said, well, who do you say I am? And how we or how every single human being answers that question is possibly one of the most defining things about us. Who do you say Jesus is? This is, uh, as Ruth has said, week three of our series where we're trying to take seriously the need to watch our life and doctrine closely. Doctrine being what we believe. And so far we have looked at what we as a church and as a group of Christians believe about Scripture and about God. And incidentally, one of the reasons this all matters is partly because how that verse finishes. In 1 Timothy 4.16. I I don't know if you, you know how it continues. But Paul actually says that because of watching your doctrine closely and persevering in that, you somehow save yourself. And so in a sense, doctrine is a life and death issue. Even though at times I know, as we said the very first week, it can be seen as a negative thing. Dogma. Something we're not that comfortable with in some ways. And yet, according to Paul, if you persevere in it, you potentially save yourself. It's an interesting thought. And tonight, the specific doctrine that we want to watch, we want to observe closely, is our belief in Jesus and what we actually believe about Jesus. Now, I know we are, in a sense, not so much pressed for time, but I'm conscious that I could say so much. And we've already sang so much about what we believe about Jesus. And it's really important to just hold that. Or we've read an incredible thing, statement about what we believe about Jesus from Colossians 1. So please do forgive me that I'm, that I'm not going to cover as much as probably I need to cover. But as we start this, I would say it's most people in the past couple of thousand years have had little or no trouble accepting the fact that Jesus Christ did exist. The evidence for that is substantial, not just from the New Testament Gospels or from other Christian writings, but also from non-Christian sources. Take the Jewish historian Josephus, for example, born A.D. 37, and he wrote this well-known, and I know it's a most uh, uh, often quoted phrase of his. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men, as receive the truth with pleasure. President Obama, in 2004, for an article entitled The God Factor, and we'll come back to that a little later, has confirmed that Jesus is a historical figure for me. And few people would actually argue with him on that point. The vast majority of people do actually accept that Jesus existed. There was a man called Jesus. Jesus. But the next layer of truth that I want us to sort of explore is the fact that we believe he was a real human being. Billy Connolly, 
on one occasion said this. I can't believe in Christianity. But I think Jesus was a wonderful man. Martin Scorsese, who made and directed the rather controversial film in 1988, The Last Temptation of Christ. The reason that he made that film was he wanted to portray that Jesus Christ was a real human being. Again, that is something that virtually everyone agrees on. And it's a key aspect of our Christian doctrine, what we as a church believe in the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. But I just want to ground that a little. I want to consider some of the evidence for it. To start with, we believe that Jesus had an actual human body. He had a normal human birth. Okay, his conception was completely out of the ordinary. It was unique. It was distinctive to say the least. But he grew as a fetus in a woman's womb. And he came into this world via that woman's birth canal after the standard period of gestation. And in so many ways his life ran, as one commentator says, just like ours, from womb to tomb. Jesus experienced puberty, physical growth. Luke points out that Jesus grew in stature. He filled out. He went from a baby to a toddler to a child, to a teenager, although back then there was no such term, to a young man, to an adult male. Jesus grew in stature. Jesus knew what it was like to wake up in the morning and need breakfast. Matthew records that early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Jesus knew what it, would be, what it was like to be dying for a drink. He knew what it was like to get tired after a long journey, to need to rest. That's why he stopped by that well where he met the woman. He had journeyed for such a long way. He felt physically tired. Jesus knew what physical pain felt like. It's described by the gospel writers in so much detail and then powerfully depicted in films like, for example, The Passion of the Christ. All revealing that Jesus had this actual physical body just like ours. But in addition, Jesus also clearly experienced a full range of human emotions. He loved to hear stories of how others got on in life. Luke actually tells us that he was filled with joy when the 72 came back from their mission trip and shared their stories. It says Jesus was filled with joy. He loved to hear other people's stories. Jesus felt personal sorrow. felt that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what it was like to cry real tears. sort of tears that many of us cry on occasions. Jesus loved. We read that he loved Martha. He loved her sister. He loved Lazarus. Jesus knew what it was like to see someone in need. Just as we were thinking about this morning. He knew what it was like to to pass by that person and recognize that they were in such need that he not only felt sorry for them, which is what I, as I've often said, I tend to do and leave it at that, but he felt so sorry for people that his stomach churned to the point where he then did something. In other words, Jesus had compassion. Jesus knew what it was like to be amazed, to be startled, to be astonished according to Luke 7, 9. He knew anger and he expressed it. 
He knew what it was like to be alone, to feel abandoned, to feel that those closest to you were not there for you when you really needed them. And again, there are people here tonight and and you've went through that sort of experience. And Jesus has. And so Jesus can identify with you and relate to you. And we can relate to Jesus on that level. Jesus knew what it was like to, and this is one of the difficult ones, wrestle with temptation. Tempted in every way. In every way. I know how the rest of that verse finishes. But even before we get to there, he was tempted in every way. We could go on. Jesus went to church. He engaged in public worship. He read. He studied. He prayed. Jesus had friends. He enjoyed spending time with people. He had a human soul that got troubled. Just like us. Just like at times our soul is deeply troubled. Jesus knew what that felt like. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with men and God. In other words, Jesus was a thinking, physical, spiritual, social human being. And few would argue with that. That's not something that many people debate. The key issue is, was Jesus more than all of that? Back to Barack Obama's quote. 2004, The God Factor. Begins, Jesus is a historical figure for me. Here's what he goes on to say. And he's also a bridge between God and man and the Christian faith. And one that I think is is powerful precisely because he serves as that means of reaching something higher. And he's also a wonderful teacher. I think it's important for all of us of whatever faith to have teachers in the flesh and also teachers in history. Very interesting phrase. And in many ways, very true. But there's something missing, or else there seems to be something missing. Although you could argue that it's implied in the description of Jesus, and it's a familiar description to many of us, the description of Jesus as a bridge. It's maybe implied in there. You see, we believe that in addition to Jesus being a historical figure, a great teacher, a wonderful man, Jesus is also God. We believe in his perfect humanity, but we also believe in his deity. Jesus is fully human, fully God. And it's at this point that then people begin to struggle. People can't quite wrap their minds around this. They even deny the possibility. I'm sure many of us have have seen or read The Da Vinci Code. A book and a film where one of the key characters played by Serene McKellen tells the other key characters that they're on the trail of one of the most ancient cover-ups ever perpetrated by the church, the true nature of Jesus Christ and the Holy Grail. And according to uh, McKellen's character, the Grail secret is that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that the church has been wrong all along about who Jesus really is. That his marriage shows that he was a mere human being after all and no one according to this film, according to this book, no one believed that Jesus was divine until the Roman Emperor Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in AD 325 in order to make Jesus divine, in order to make him the Son of God. But that's not what we believe. We believe Jesus was divine, that Jesus was, as we often say, God with skin on. 
what Christmas is all about. That's what the incarnation is all about. Tim Keller, uh, in Come Thou Long Expected, Jesus says this, No other religion, whether secularism, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern religion, Judaism or Islam, believes God became, and I love this phrase, breakable, or suffered, or had a body. Eastern religion believes physical is illusion. Greco-Romans believe the physical is bad. Judaism and Islam don't believe God would do such a thing as live in the flesh. But we do. We do. We believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in Colossians 2, the chapter after Ruth read for us, for in him, speaking about Jesus, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's a startling phrase. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And as a church and a group of Christians, we firmly believe that we're not dealing with either or. Either a man or God. But it's both and. Jesus was both fully human and fully God. And what we're into, and something was said last week, in a sense we're into the realm of mystery. Can I fully explain that? Can anybody fully explain that? But what's our basis for such a belief? Why do we actually believe that? Well, primarily, although not exclusively, we accept this based on a lot of what Jesus said. Now again, Jesus didn't go round explicitly stating on every occasion, I am God. But in a lot of his teaching, as he addressed some very real human needs, he said things that suggested he knew he was more than a man. Let me just give you five examples. The first is this. Jesus recognized that people are aware of this deep spiritual hunger that exists within them. An internal appetite that needs to be nourished. Jesus knew people possessed that. And so one of the things that he said was, listen, I am the bread of life. I will meet that internal hunger that you have for something more. Jesus also knew that people fear darkness. Not just physical darkness, but also that sense of despair, disillusionment, of living in a spiritually dark world. And so on a different occasion, he confirmed to another similar Christ, he said, listen, I am the light of the world. Massive statement to make for someone who was just a man. Thirdly, Jesus knew how fearful people were of dying. A fear that continues today. And so as he speaks to a group of mourners beside a grave, he says, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. Fourth example, Jesus also knew that many people lived life burdened down, worried, anxious. And so on one occasion he said, come to me. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And finally, one of the key questions that humanity has always wrestled with is this. What is God like? What is God actually like? And as Jesus comforted his disciples, just after he had told them that he was leaving them, he said this. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Now those were five major declarations that disclose that Jesus thought of himself as much more 
than just a man. But there were two other indirect claims of divinity. And the first one really upset the religious establishment of the day. As Jesus looked on a paralyzed man lying in a mat who had just been lowered through the ceiling of a crowded house, the first thing he said to that man was not what everyone was expecting him to say. Son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders went berserk at this point because now, as far as they were concerned, Jesus was into the realms of blasphemy. You cannot say that. Who can forgive? This was the question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That was the point. And Jesus then goes on to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins by turning around and enabling the paralytic to get up and walk home. Another indirect claim of Jesus was that one day he was going to judge the world. And everyone knew this this really again didn't sit well with people. Everyone knew that only God would judge. Very clear Old Testament teaching. But now in Matthew 25, Jesus is confirming, I'm going to do the separating. And I'm going to separate people into two distinct groups. I will judge. So as well as those five declarations, those two indirect claims, there were also numerous times whenever Jesus was very direct, right in your face announcements and disclosures. One occasion was as Jesus faced the prospect of being stoned to death, he asked the stone throwers, why are you so annoyed? Why are you so troubled by me? In fact, he said to them, what good work is it that I have done that has upset you so much? And here was their response. We're not stoning you for any good work. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So he did at times claim to be God. And as Jesus stood before the high priest, he was asked point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Simple answer, yes, I am. And the minute Jesus said that, the high priest ripped his clothes apart and condemned Jesus to death. Blasphemy. This man thinks he's God. And then there's Thomas's infamous confession as he stood before Jesus. My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. And I hope all of that sort of collage of thoughts and references helps us to see why we believe that Jesus saw himself as more than a mere human being. But I realize that if somebody makes the kind of claims we have considered, those claims need to be tested. It's a fair point. Just because somebody claims to be someone doesn't mean they are the person they claim to be. And then we're into these three possibilities, the three logical possibilities regarding the staggering claims of the man, Jesus. Either the claims were blatantly false. Everything is just blatantly false. And Jesus was, in a sense, an imposter and an evil one at that. So people say, Jesus was just plain bad. Or Jesus had no clue. In which case, he was slightly deluded. He was totally deranged. Therefore, some people think, no, he's just mad. Or, third possibility is that, yes, okay, the claims are true. He was God. Although, as Nigel pointed out, recently at Christianity Explored, and for those of you who have read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, he offers a fourth possibility. That Jesus was honestly mistaken. But taking all that into consideration, C.S. Lewis's landmark quote 
which is always worth reflecting on as we weigh up these options, is worth repeating. A man who was merely a man said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be insane or else he would be the devil of hell. Alternatively, Jesus was and is the Son of God. You make your choice. Now in order to assess the claims of Jesus, in a sense we need to evaluate those three possibilities. And to do that, what we must do and what people today must do is examine the evidence from his life that actually back up everything he said. You've got actually, okay Jesus, we've heard what you've said. And remember, I I realise that Whenever you deal with doctrine, whenever you deal with the doctrine of Jesus, a lot of what I'm saying is based on scripture. And that's why week one of this series was so important. And I realize that for those of us who live in a a world which no longer recognizes the authority of scripture, that at times this can be a difficult exercise because so much of what I'm saying is anchored in scripture. And yet if people outside the walls of these churches say, I don't believe in scripture, I recognize that this is all very difficult. That's why faith is so important. But as we look at scripture and we look at the claims of Jesus, we've got to say, well, okay, let's examine, let's examine the evidence that there is the back up what Jesus actually said about himself. Let me give you five key pieces of evidence. The first is his teaching. And again, I mean, that's one of the reasons so many of us are attracted to Jesus. That many of the laws in this country were originally based on the teachings of Jesus. His wisdom and his advice for living are widely acknowledged as some of the most impressive ever shared by anyone. Could, for example, the Sermon on the Mount honestly come from someone who is mentally unstable? Secondly, his works. And by that, I don't just mean his miracles and those that in themselves were breathtaking. There's no doubt about that. But also his love. And his love for the loveless, which clearly motivated everything he did. And again, the evidence doesn't exactly point to someone who was evil or deluded. Thirdly, his character. That's why Billy Connolly and others and millions of others are so impressed by Jesus. Because he exemplified supreme unselfishness, humility, joy, kindness. He was a person even his enemies couldn't find fault in. Could someone with a character like Jesus honestly be considered wicked or unbalanced? Fourthly, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Jesus, over 300 Old Testament prophecies spoken by different voices over 500 years were fulfilled. And then finally, although for many people, the key piece of evidence, his resurrection, which does stand as the cornerstone of Christianity. There's no doubt about that. And of course that's been questioned, it's been examined, it's been scrutinized for two millennia. But the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is there. And as one former Chief Justice of England said, in its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Now when you take, and that was uh, Lord Darling who said that, now when you take and consider and you examine those five pieces of evidence, we believe that they do provide compelling evidence to support the view that Jesus was more than just a man. Jesus was 
God. And as Lewis then goes on to point out, we are faced then by a frightening alternative. Either Jesus was exactly what he said, or else he was insane or something worse. However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. And in a sense, that is what we believe as a church. We believe in his deity and perfect humanity. And so back to our opening question, who do you say I am? If our answer is yes, fully human and fully God, manhood and deity in perfect harmony, then the implications of that are massive. And it's the reason why I have taken time tonight to just work my way through this. Because the implications of reaching this place where you believe that, yes, Jesus was fully human and fully God are huge. And in two weeks' time, whenever James considers the atonement, the implications of all that I've been saying tonight will begin to fall into place.